Well, it's great to see you, uh, and it is always a joy to sing with the whole Providence family. If you're uh, new with us, if you're in the room or at home, uh, welcome. We're thrilled that you have joined us. Uh, If you are new to to church or to the Bible or to Jesus, uh, I want you to know what we care about, and that is that uh, what we found in life is that there is simply no life purpose. There is no pleasure. There is There is no point apart from knowing Jesus Christ as Lord. And there's no greater privilege than to seek to glorify him by introducing people around the world who do not know who he is and then to try to help them to grow, to to actually love him and to worship him in every area of their life. And so sometimes what happens is when you hear something like that and you think that sounds inspiring, but what is my part in that? How do I engage in that mission? Uh, How do I live in such a way that my entire life matters for something that's going to last forever and ever and ever? And so what we've sought to do is to look through the scriptures and identify simple steps, a simple pathway with four simple steps. And so if you're new here at Providence, or maybe you've been here a long time and you simply don't know how to necessarily engage or leverage your life in the mission that it's going to last forever. We want to encourage you to consider participating in one of these pathway classes and maybe even next week. Uh, we're about to open the Bible. When we open the Bible, um, amazing things happen. And the reason is because it is God's word. It is his written revelation of who he is and who we are and how we're supposed to live in his world. It's transformational. And how it transforms us is sometimes in a painful way. The first thing that what what always happens when you open up the Bible is we are revealed to us something that's true about us that oftentimes is not all that healthy and not all that attractive. One of the first things it does is it is it addresses our life and then it moves a step further and that is it sometimes undresses our life. Meaning it identifies those fears and anxieties and unbelief. It identifies our idols and our sin. And and it says all of this needs to come off if you're to live a life that's ultimately pleasing to, to God, but also brings joy and peace and meaning to your life. And so he... He takes the courage as he has, he's God, to say, let me tell you some things I see that are ruining your joy. And then what's amazing about the grace of God is, you can say it that way, it is the grace of God is that as soon as he undresses us, he looks to redress us. Meaning he has no intention for you to walk out of the room simply not being afraid. He wants you to walk out of the room not being afraid because you're courageous because he's armed you with so many promises. So many promises to never leave you. So many promises to never forsake you. And so he intends to, you say it this way, to cut you with his word and me. But as soon as he cuts for our good like a wise and loving surgeon... He intends to heal and mend. And that's why this is so formative to our life. And so we want to pray for help, okay? So if you would, bow and let's pray. Father, we look to you in faith and ask that you would be gracious to us to give us faith. Would you help us when we read this to find it terribly interesting? It's stunningly interesting. More interesting than the things that would distract our attention. Lesser things and sometimes even heavy things. 
God, would you cause us to find interest? And then, God, would you take us a step further? Would you address our life? Would you remove everything that is sabotaging our joy and our faith and our belief and our relationship with you? And, God, I pray that then you would heal and that you would build up, that you would restore. I pray, Father, for those in this room right now who are just looking into What are the claims of Jesus and what is the Bible? I pray that this time would be helpful to them, encouraging to them, inspiring to them. And ultimately, I pray, God, that you would open their eyes and all of our eyes even more so to the greatness and supremacy and righteousness and holiness and stunning love of Jesus Christ who makes life worth living. So we look to you in faith and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you're at home or in the room, I want to ask you if you have with you a Bible, if you would look with me to um, Ecclesiastes chapter 11. If you're just starting with us, we've been walking through a series through this book verse by verse, um, and we have arrived at chapter 11 verse 1, and we're going to go through chapter 12 and verse 8. If you're new to all this and new to this book, it's written by a man, his name is Solomon, and Solomon was the king of Israel, which means that he grew up and lived his entire life in power and privilege and wealth. He had a good life when it comes to what we normally assign those words. That person has a good life. And what's interesting is his story, it starts off so good. God comes to him and he says, Solomon, you can ask me anything that you want as you begin your reign as king. And Solomon looks at all the things that you would normally think of asking. Like if you had one wish from God and he was going to fulfill that wish in your life, just imagine what you might pray. And what he says is this. He says, God, I recognize that you are unlike any other There is only one true God, and this is your people. And what I need more than anything in the world is wisdom to know what is is true and what is false, what is right and what is wrong, so that I can lead this people, your people, in a way that would honor you. And God was so pleased with him that he not only gave him wisdom, he gave him everything he didn't ask for as well. And yet in spite of all the blessing in his life, the Bible tells us that Solomon's heart was pulled away from the Lord and he began to chase meaning and hope and joy in the world. And in spite of wild success in all of his endeavors, he tells us in Ecclesiastes, which is sort of at the end of his life, it's sort of the summary of his quest for meaning apart from the Lord, that he decided that all of his endeavors, even though they were successful, it was like a chasing after the wind. Running after something with such intensity only to find that it's not there when you get there. And this is precisely what he does throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, which is why for many people, the book is very perplexing. And sometimes you look at it and it may even be depressing. And yet what he wants in our life is is to give us his life lesson like most grandparents do so that we would learn his lessons instead of imitate his mistakes. Now you would assume that if he's, concluded that all of the endeavors in his life is simply a chasing after the wind. And you would assume that Solomon, the end of his life, like a bitter old man, that he would pour water on all the fire of our dreams. He might say, you know what? I already ran that race. I already won gold. And I promise you that's not the path to joy. He could do that with every single one of us. And yet what we find here is he does just the opposite. He gets to the end of his letter And what he's going to urge you to do is to dream, 
and to risk and to run. Let me show you. Look at verse one. Verse one of Ecclesiastes chapter 11. He says, cast your bread upon the waters for you will find it after many days. This is a Jewish idiom that we don't use in our culture to cast your bread upon the water. So let me explain what it means. If you're a farmer and you plant seeds in the ground and God gives you a harvest with those seeds and now all of a sudden you have all this grain that's in front of you, you have options of what you're going to do with that grain. You can, if you want to, you can store it all. It's the safe option or it's the safer option. And you can ensure that you're going to have bread for yourself and for your friends and family, not only today, but maybe even tomorrow and many tomorrows after that. But there's another thing that you could do. And that is that you could put your grain on a boat to cast it to the sea, literally to put it on a boat that would sail away from you. You wouldn't see that grain again. And you would send it to trade in the hope that you would be able to reap a greater reward to yourself than the value of that grain. And so there's two options. One is safe bread and the other one is risk, but the possibility of a heavy return. And what he says to us at the end of his life, he's not talking about farming. He's using this illustration to talk about life. He's saying you can play your whole life safe if you want. But I urge you to risk. I urge you to put your life out there and chase a dream. You see, the words cast your bread, what they literally mean then is take a calculated risk. However, we live in a broken world and you know that the broken world has pirates and sometimes ships, they sink to the ground. And sometimes if you have boats and they are going to bring something back as they are delayed a long time. Solomon actually tells us in first Kings chapter 10, it says that he had a fleet of ships that would go out and would return only once every three years. And because that's the case, he says in verse two, he gives us some wisdom. He says, so give a portion to seven or even to eight for, you know, not what disaster may happen on earth. He says, you know, on earth it's true. Sometimes bad things happen. There are pirates. Sometimes boats do sink with all of the contents, all of the grain that are sitting in those boats. And so what he's urging is this, is be wise enough to diversify. You get a harvest of grain divided into seven or eight portions. Don't put all the grain on one boat because that one boat may sink. Be wise enough to diversify and yet hopeful enough to risk. And so before we move on, I want to ask you a question or two. What's something that you believe that God has told you to do that you've not done? Or maybe even more inspiring or less convicting is what is a dream that God has put upon your heart? And you just think, you know, one day, but you haven't yet begun to pursue that dream. Now, what he's going to do for the rest of our text is he's going to give us evidence of why you and I, that we should be running and dreaming and risking now. 
You see, some of you right now, you're like, oh, I have a dream. But in about 10 years from now, you know, when the kids leave or, t- or f- four years from now, when I get out of college or, or this happens or this happens or this happens. And Solomon says, now, let me tell you something. You may not be around four years from now. That if you have breath in your lungs today, then today is the day to dream and to risk and to run. And so let me show you the evidence that he has of why he would say you and I let's risk and run right now. The first reason he tells us is because life is unpredictable. Life is unpredictable. It carries risks. There really are pirates. There really are times when boats with all kinds of valuables on them, they really do sink into the bottom of the ocean. There is risk. And some of us don't like risk very much. We'd rather have safe bread. And so he says in verse three, if the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth And if a tree falls to the south or to the north in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. You know what this is saying? It says sometimes the rain, it falls on you and other times it doesn't. I know that's like rocket science for everybody, right? But the fact is, is if you live in this city, let's just say you live right here. Well, this person who lives here and this person who lives here, right in the middle of where this deluge is actually following, they both look up and they see the same clouds. And what he's saying is there's some people who look up and they go, well, today is not the day to run after my dream, but the rain may not fall on you today. And you don't know if it will or not. It's unpredictable. And then he says, you know what? When it comes to trees, sometimes they fall to the north and sometimes they fall to the south. You don't know where they're going to land. And so notice what he says then in verse four. He goes, if that's the principle, then what should we do? He who observes the wind will not sow and he who regards the clouds will not reap. In other words, if you today are waiting for that perfect setup, where the wind and the sky look only favorable and there's no possibility for a tree to fall and block your path, then what will happen is you will never sow a seed and you'll never reap your dream. You don't know what's going to happen. And so divide it up and take a few portions and throw it at your dream and see what happens. In other words, quit making excuses for not doing what God told you to do or put on your heart to do. Submit the application. You never know what's going to happen. Begin the adoption process. You never know what's going to happen. Ask the girl out. You never know what's going to happen. If the boat returns with profit, then you thank God. If it sinks to the bottom of the ocean, you trust God. So one reason we should be running right now is because life is unpredictable. You don't know what's going to happen. Second is life is mysterious. Some of us in the room, this is similar to the first, is that we want to know everything about a situation before we try anything in the situation. And the Bible just tells you, you're just not going to know everything you want to know in order to take a flyer on your dream. You're just not going to know if it's going to work out or not. Some of us, we say, you know what? If, if, if I know she's going to say yes, then I'm going to be more inclined to ask her out. In fact, I'm not going to ask if I don't know for certain 
but you don't know. Or others, you're like, you know, I know I need to forgive this person or I need to go and ask them to forgive me. But if I go and put myself out like that and I put, expose myself to say, okay, look, I was wrong. This is my failure. This is how I was, I was in air. Would you forgive me? Like, I want to know they're going to say, yes, I forgive you. And that's going to go well as opposed to them shaming me or holding it against me. Some would say, well, you know, I, I would start my book, but I don't know if it's going to get published. I promise you the book you never write will not get published. Write the first paragraph. You never know. This is what he's saying. And so look what he says in verse five. As you do not know the way the spirit comes into the bones in the womb of a woman with child. So you do not know the work of God who makes everything. Now what he's doing, he's just offering us one illustration. And here's an illustration. He says, you know what? We were all created in the image of God. Psalm 139 says that God actually weaves us together in our mother's womb. And one of the things that God does in that weaving process is he weaves a spirit into that baby in the womb, a spirit that will live forever, a spirit that gives that person the opportunity to have a relationship with God, puts eternity within their heart. This is what he's talking about. Now, let me ask you a question. How does God do it? Solomon says, well, we don't know. He goes, now that's just one thing you don't know about the Lord. (laughs) Think about everything in life, all the things that possibly could happen that you do not know. And he says, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. He said, there's so many things you do not know in life. So what should we do then? Verse six, so in the morning, sow your seed and in the evening, withhold not your hand for you do not know which will prosper this or that or whether both alike will be good. In other words, like this hand right now, if you're a farmer, if you want to put seeds down, the fact is, is you don't know which one of these, like there may be one of them that's already dead. You just don't even know. One may actually create an enormous harvest of, and one may do nothing. So what's he saying? He's saying plant a bunch of seeds because you don't know which one is going to work. God knows, but you don't know. In other words, what he's talking about here is this, is how do we as human beings deal and live in a world where God is sovereign over all things? And in this, this one area of sovereignty, this is what I would simply say to you, is that God's sovereignty is supposed to be your comfort and not your excuse. That God does not tell us that he is sovereign so that we will lean on a shovel and pray for a hole. If he puts a shovel in your hand, even though he is sovereign, there is an expectation that you will dig If he puts a dream in your heart, whatever it is, I don't know if it'll work or not, but I promise you this is that he intends for you and for me to pursue that dream and to dig that hole. And so we should be running and risking now, not only because life is unpredictable and mysterious, but the third thing and last is because life is brief. Some of you, you've been here a while now, you've been here all summer long and you thought, I'm pretty sure. Some of you have already thought this. You thought maybe this is the one that he makes it through an entire sermon in Ecclesiastes without talking about a funeral. And it's not going to happen. One more. Here it is. Okay. Life is brief. 
And some of you, this is going to disturb you. He, he, he's going to use a metaphor that frankly is disturbing to humanity. But he uses it as motivation to get you to move and to dream and to run and to risk. And the reason is because you may not be here tomorrow, but you are here today. This is what he's going to say to you. So just watch what he does here. <laughs> what the Bible says is that you and I were all given a predetermined number of minutes. And God is the one who predetermines those number of minutes. And that clock on your life is ticking. Every minute that passes is a minute that is passed forever. It's like a jar. And every single minute you take one out. And everybody starts with a different number of of marbles. Every single one of us, our life is a different length and the clock is ticking. So what he's going to do is he's going to show us this death process, which is really sobering, but he starts on a really good note. He's like, okay, I know this is going to just wear you down. And so let me show you how, like some of us are going to have a really good day. And this is what he says in verse seven. He says, light is sweet and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. <laughs> What that means is there are some days in life where the sunlight, you open up your eyes and you look and you see the sunlight that comes through the window, just like this picture. And it feels like the hope that you have within your heart. It doesn't happen like that every day, but there are some days when it does happen. You wake up, you feel rested, you get up, you have a good hair day, your jeans fit all the way up, like anxiety is low, health is high, your back is not stiff, kids are agreeable, your spouse is affectionate. He says, man, on those days, on those days when you're just inspired to order a sticker that says life is good, I'm going to stick it on the back of my car. He goes, you better go ahead and order the sticker. Chase the dream. And the reason is because the day is coming when, you, when no light passes through that window for your life. He says, well, that just got bad really quick. Look at verse 8. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all, but let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. The death process. All that comes is vanity. Now, if you are new with us and you've not heard the rest of this series, it's really important you understand this, okay? There's just a few key words. It's like master keys to the whole book. One of them is the word vanity. One of them is the word under the sun. What he talks in, is, is actually saying there is this, is, 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 is if what you can see with your eyes is all there is, he goes, then it's vanity. In other words, the book of Ecclesiastes is written from the perspective, if this is all there is, if there's no truth, no revelation, no God, no rescuer, no redeemer, no savior, no heaven, no eternal life, no forgiveness, no hope. You just live, you have your endeavors, and then you die. He says, you know what? It's vain. Now, fortunately, so if you only had Ecclesiastes, like if you were like some tribe somewhere and, or, or, or some people group, and there really are people groups, they have no books of the Bible. No Bible translators start with Ecclesiastes. Here, this is God's word for you. This is all you get, Ecclesiastes. That would be really hard. Because you would look at it, and it's only written from one perspective, and that is, if this is all there is, if all you can see with your eyes is all there is, he goes, then the whole thing is meaningless. It's vain. 
Now, fortunately, we have the rest of the Bible that actually colors that, that tells us that for those of us who trust Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, that the day that becomes darkest on the earth actually becomes the brightest forever. That we will be forgiven by God when we trust him as Savior, and then we will live with him forever and ever in heaven. Oh, there is such great news in the Bible, such great news. It's called the gospel. And yet, this side of heaven, when we're walking through it, he's saying, I need you to dream and I need you to run and risk. And the reason is because this stuff is really going to happen. He's saying, enjoy the light while you can. He gets to verse nine and he says, rejoice, O young man, in your youth and let your heart cheer you all the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Now, some of you, you just read, oh, young man or oh, young woman. You think, well, this isn't for me. I'm no longer a young man or a young woman. Some of you, you're like, oh, I'm pretty sure he's talking to me. And some of you are like, no, I've already passed that age. Let me tell you something. He's talking to you. And this is how I know. If you get tomorrow, you'll be older tomorrow than today. So you're younger today than tomorrow. If you're still breathing, if you're still thinking, then this is the day for you to run and risk and dream. That's what he's saying. He says, but when you do so, he says, in your youth, let your heart cheer you. And then he says in this middle part, walk in the ways of your heart and the side of your eyes. He's saying, chase something. What's on your heart? Run after it. Go for it. But then he says, but don't forget that you live in God's world. And one day you're going to stand before God in judgment. So don't forget his rules. Don't forget what he cares about. Don't forget that you're going to stand before a holy God and give an account for every decision and every word of your life. And then he moves on. In verse 10, he says, remove vexation from your heart. Uh, No matter how old you are, and particularly if you really are a young person, this is so critically important what he's saying. Because what he's saying is this. Deal with the junk that vexes your heart now so that it will not rule your decisions for the rest of your life. You have anxiety problem, deal with it. You have an addiction problem, deal with it. You have a guilt problem, a shame problem, you need to deal with it. Whatever it is that vexes your heart, you need to pursue a solution. Sometimes that solution is not one day. Sometimes it may take a long time. Sometimes what vexes people is actually physical or or financial debt. In other words, I know people and they say, you know, I want to become a missionary. This is where I would go. But the first thing is all these agencies that would be sending and supporting me. What they say is I can't have financial debt that's overwhelming. And so I need to get out of debt first. Okay, then address what vexes your soul now. If that's the dream that's in front of you, stop buying TVs. Get an extra job, run after it as quickly as you can. Address whatever it is that might vex your souls to protect the rest of your life and to protect the rest of your dream. Then he goes on and he goes, and not only your heart, but he says, and put away pain from your body for youth and dawn of life or vanity. What does he mean here? It means you need to care for your body. This is so hard in particular. I think he really is talking to young people here, but even those of you and me who are a little bit older, it's. He's going to show us that it's only going to get more physically challenging. And so go ahead, while you have strength, go ahead and utilize it. But let me tell you something. All these college students over here, they look so young and spry, they're going to jump out of, the, out of the gym. You need to take care of your body. You know why? Because those eyes are the only ones you get. And those ears are the only ones you get. And those knees of yours are the only real ones you get. 
And that hip, it's the only real one you get. There's a few things that we've identified. We can say, hey, we'll just throw one of these on and take one of those off. But for the most part, what you have is what you get. And so you need to take care of it when you're young. Something's going to happen to you. It'll surprise you. At around 35, 40, somewhere around there, you'll, you'll, you'll still be able to do the things you like to do and want to do, but it'll feel different when you're doing them. And you'll be thinking differently while you're doing them. I know right now you can't compensate for it. You, you can't imagine that. It's inconceivable, but the day is coming. I'm 46 years old. I like to wakeboard. The first time in my life, first time in my life, last summer, it was my turn, get into the water, strap up, ready. I've got the rope, I'm ready. And I have the conscious, I've never had this conscious thought ever in my life. And the conscious thought was this, this may be the last time. Not that I thought I was going to die. I thought, you know, this knee, it may actually blow out this time. This may be the time. You just start thinking differently because it takes so much longer to recover. And this is what he's saying. Take care of your body. Chapter 12, verse 1. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth. That means wherever you're at, no matter how old you are, if you have another day coming, don't forget to leave God out of your life today. Don't forget to look to God in making your decisions today. Don't forget to look to God when considering who you're going to marry today. The reason is because your decisions today will affect all of your tomorrows. And there is an inconceivable tomorrow that is approaching for every one of us. And that's where he goes next. He says, remember also your creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you say, I have no pleasure in them. I know this is just so hard. It's inconceivable when you're not at that place. But there is coming a day, he says, that if you live long enough on this earth... Things will happen at such an extent with your physical body and your mind and your heart that when you wake up and you see light coming through the window, you say, oh, another day. I know a lot of people who because of physical pain and emotional pain and they're just older and they can't wait to get to heaven that they pray, God, would you take me one night when I'm sleeping? And every morning they wake up, they think, man, Hoping this would be the one. I know for you, you think, well, that's just inconceivable. I can't imagine ever thinking that. But then he goes through this metaphor, what's going to happen to each one of us if we live long enough on the earth. And it's quite sobering. Okay. So just, it's supposed to be a little funny. I think that's why it's written as a metaphor so that we don't just see it all so blunt. And yet just consider what he says. He says, you need to remember your creator before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened. This is a metaphor to your mind, your thoughts. One day you're going to forget things. One day you're going to be in a room and people are going to be talking. And then you're going to be done talking and you won't remember anything about that conversation. One day you're going to forget where your keys are at. And so you're going to ask your spouse for some essential oil or some herb that's going to help you remember stuff. And then all of a sudden you're going to forget where it's stored. You're going to have the essential oil in the house where I have no idea where it's at. Our mind it, you live long enough and it gets darkened. It gets weakened. He goes in the clouds return after the rain and the day when the keepers of the hands tremble. What are the keepers of the house? It's the hands. You live long enough and what you're going to find is your hands are going to shake just like your grandparents. Then he goes on and he says, and the strong men 
are bent. The strong men are the, the, the thing like, hey, let me pick up the refrigerator. And then all of a sudden you get to a place and you're like, you know, let somebody else pick up the refrigerator. It's the legs, it's the back, it's the shoulders to where eventually you live long enough and you'll start to stoop over a little bit. You'll be a little bit shorter. You won't quite be as tall. He goes on and he says, and the grinders cease because they're few. This is your teeth. And those who look through the windows are dimmed. What are the windows that are dimmed? Well, it's our eyes. Our eyesight begins to give way. Suddenly things become blurry. And so you get some glasses or contacts. And then then eventually it gets worse. And they say, you can't wear contacts anymore. We got to go solely glasses. And then all of a sudden it gets worse. And like, we need to get some thicker glasses. And eventually we should put multiple lenses in those really thick glasses. They get dim. And he says, and the doors on the street are shut. When the sound of the grinding is low, the doors on the street, that's our ears. All of a sudden, you're, other people are talking. You're like, hey, what? Hey, say that one more time. All of us have talked to somebody who's older on the phone, and it seems like they're screaming, right? Or you have to scream in order for them to listen. Well, that's coming for you and me. He goes on, and he says, let's see, where am I? And one rises at the sound of a bird. <laughs> you know, like there's a reason Jeopardy's at seven, you know? So you watch your Jeopardy, and then all of a sudden, like, you get tired, and so you go to bed, and suddenly the very first bird is like chirping, all of a sudden it's time. Everyone else in the house is asleep. It's like 4.45, and you're like, okay, it's time. It's time to get up. Your sequence of going to sleep and waking up will be different. As you get older, and he goes on, he goes and all, you're like, enough already, but he goes on, he goes, and all the daughters of the song are brought low, and they're afraid also of what is high, and terrors are in the way. Afraid of what is high, that doesn't mean that they don't like the bungee jump, okay? It means that sometimes you get old enough, and even one single curb feels too high. If I step off this curb, am I going to land? And terrors are in the way. You're going to get to a place one day. If you live long enough, you're going to look at a staircase and you're going to think, that might be the most terrifying thing I see today. I don't know if I can make it up. And if I get up there, how am I going to get back down? And then he goes on and he gets, he says, the almond tree blossoms. The almond tree, they blossom flowers that are white. And so you get gray hair. Don't laugh. And the grasshopper drags itself along. <laughs> this is great. I just he's like, this is Solomon's grandpa. So this is, this is what he's describing. Like when you're young, your joints, nothing hurts. And you just jump and, you, you, and all of a sudden he gets to the place to where those joints, they don't work anymore. And so what used to be something that could fly and jump and move quickly suddenly cannot anymore. And desire fails. Some of your Bible translations that say caperberry, which is a sexual stimulant. What he's talking about is one day the time will come to when your sexual impulse will not be there any longer. And then he goes on and he says, because man is going to his eternal home and the mourners go about the streets. That's your funeral. Before the silver cord, your spinal cord is snapped or the golden bowl, your honor is broken. And the pitcher, which is the heart, is shattered at the fountain. And the wheel, it's your blood pressure broken at the cistern. And then he goes, one well, last, last part. And the dust returns to the earth. That's your death. And the spirit returns to God who gave it. That's judgment. He says, vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. You're like, that is the most discouraging sermon in the history of sermons. <laughs> and what he's doing is simply saying this. T 
Tick-tock goes your clock. It is unpredictable, and it's mysterious, and it's brief. And so if you have a dream, then put some of the grain on a boat and chase that dream. A few applications before we close. First is let's trust God by dreaming, risking, and running. Run while you can. I know that many dreams, they require a series of steps to completion. So what is step one? Simply say, don't be the person who talks about what you wish you would have done during this season of life. Plant some seeds. Pray for a harvest. If you get one, divide it up. Put some of them on a boat. Chase a dream and trust God with them. But it's true that not all dreams are equally noble, isn't it? I mean, some people like their greatest dream is to collect peacock feathers. Like if they just get like 400 of them, then I'm going to be just die satisfied. Or some, some, most of us, like we have something that's where you hear someone else's dream. You're like, oh, you want to start four orphanages. And I was just thinking about feathers, you know, like there's different weights to our dreams on the earth. And so this is where the second point adds clarity to our dreaming. Don't just dream about anything. No, let God's mission direct your dreams. You see, when we study Ecclesiastes or any book of the Bible, it's like holding a simple piece of the puzzle, just one little piece. There's a thousand pieces, and all of a sudden you pick one off, and you're like, hey, look at that. It's a piece of the puzzle. And you can look at it, you can see something in it, maybe an eyeball, or maybe, maybe, maybe something you're like, hey, I know what that is, but you don't know what it's connected to. And so it is with the book of the Bible. What it says is true, but if you don't know the story into which it fits, you don't know how it contributes to the whole or how the whole helps you interpret the piece. Every book of the Bible tells a part of one big story, a big story that goes from creation where God says, I want to create you to know me to a fall where we rebelled against God to a place to where God Almighty in his grace sought to redeem us by sending Jesus Christ, his son to this earth in a response to his promise that he would send a rescuer so that we could know him and be forgiven of our sin when he died on a cross and when he rose from the dead. And the last part of the story that we're waiting for is restoration, when Jesus has promised to make all things new. And so what we find here is this, Ecclesiastes, its place in the canon of scripture is simply to reinforce and show us the ravaging effects of the fall. It's narrowing us to that place. So where Ecclesiastes urges us to dream and risk, the rest of the Bible narrows our focus so that we're dreaming and risking in something that matters, that will last forever. This is what Solomon, uh, uh, Moses did in Psalm chapter 90. He's like, God, would you teach us to number our days so that we would have a heart of wisdom? Show us how many days we have so that we can leverage every one of them. And then he says, and would you serve us this way? Would you let your work be shown to your servants? Do you know why he wanted to know what God was up to? Because if he could align his life and his dreams around what God's mission was in the world, then they would be absolutely certain that the work of his hands would be established forever. That his dreams would be connected to a kingdom that would last and endure forever and ever and ever. Habakkuk 2.14 tells us all about the end of God's mission. He says, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. He created you for this mission. He sent Jesus Christ for this mission. 
He's commissioned us to make disciples that would make disciples so that the knowledge of his glory would cover all the peoples of the world just as the waters cover the sea. And those who do trust in Jesus Christ, who repent of their sin, who trust in him and believe and confess him as Lord, the Bible says he forgives us of our sin, but then he sends us on a mission. And so Providence, let's dream mission advancing dreams. And let's take mission advancing risks. And the very last thing I want you to see, this is so important. When he says, remember also your creator, this is so important. This last thing is, as you're dreaming and you're thinking about what you're going to run after in life, is let's seek God's face as we dream, risk, and run. To seek someone's face is to enjoy a relationship with them. It's to say, I'm aware that you're here. I see your present. I want to know your name. I want to be with you. When we don't seek someone's face, what we're saying is, if this person over here, I'm seeking this person's face, is I, I recognize you're here in the room. I want to know who you are. But if I have my back to them the whole time, I'm saying, I don't really recognize you there, and I don't care. And this is what he's saying, because as you live your life, he says, make sure you face your creator. Make sure you recognize that even the mission of God to give your entire life to making Jesus Christ known is absolutely empty if you don't know Christ as your own Savior and Lord. He intends for all of life to be about a relationship with him. And so the question I have is, have you trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior? As you're planning your dreams and you're making your plans and you're risking and you're, and you're running... Is God Almighty in a relationship with him important to you? You see, the reason that Solomon's running felt like a chasing after the wind is because he did all of his running apart from a relationship with his creator. And at the end of his life, when he's a grandpa, he comes to us and he says, listen to me. Learn my lesson. Don't imitate my example. So what has God placed in your heart? I urge you, chase it. Chase with all your might. So let me pray. Father in heaven, we love you. We thank you for your kindness to us. We thank you for Ecclesiastes 11 and 12. And we th thank you for the sobering reminder that it is. That forces us to think that we may not be here as long as we think that we will. And I pray, Father, that you would use it, God, to inspire a fresh wave in each of our hearts to be thinking about how to build our life upon the cornerstone, how to, how to give our time and energy and resources to something that's going to matter forever and ever and ever. We ask God that you would align our desires and our dreams to your mission and your work to glorify Jesus Christ. And I pray for those who are considering trusting Jesus now, that you would open their eyes to the beauty and supremacy of Christ that without whom life is absolutely meaningless. We thank you for the hope that we have in knowing Christ. And we thank you that even though we will one day die, that you are going to make all things new. And so thank you for the hope that we have. We sing to you now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.